Hi, everybody. This is Pete Worrell, and I'd like to welcome you today to this episode of Positive Enterprise Value. Positive Enterprise Value can be found on Bigelow LLC's website, which is bigelowllc.com, or on iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, for 30 years, I've had the fun of meeting with thousands of entrepreneurs and working with hundreds. That's a lot of scar tissue. And I've seen that successfully striving for achievement and ultimately fulfillment leaves real clues for the rest of us, breadcrumbs in the forest that we can follow. So I've worked at deconstructing the behavior of high-performing entrepreneur owner managers to let all of us who listen to this learn a lot about peak performance and optimal experience as business owners. In this series of podcasts, I interview seasoned, successful entrepreneur owner managers who are high performers, maybe even peak performers in their niche domains. Sometimes they come from the for-profit area, sometimes the not-for-profit area. And what I'm looking for is sort of patterns of connectedness across those domains. Today, you'll be able to hear my one-on-one interview with Todd McAllister. Todd is the CEO of Fountain Therapeutics. Fountain is a startup company that was founded by uh, Tony Robbins, if that name means anything to you. Tony is one of the uh, most successful and most uh, consistently uh, sustaining um, professional development gurus in the world. Tony Robbins, Peter Diamandis, who needs no introduction to this uh, audience, and uh, Bob Hariri. Bob is uh, another PhD MD who uh, founded uh, companies like uh, cell gene and cellularity. Bob, Peter, and Tony came together to form Fountain Therapeutics in January. In full disclosure, I am also a founding stockholder of the company. It was founded uh, to uh, focus on uh, expanding worldwide a series of clinics to give stem cell therapies, principally placental-derived stem cell therapies, to restore and maintain our human body's regenerative capacity, and mostly in what I'll call healthy, normal humans. Fountain is just getting started. It's only six months old. And the occasion of my um, interview with Todd was that I and my wife were kind of uh, beta clients, if you will, uh, going through the Fountain process, which involved a morning at the Human Longevity Inc. uh, uh, Health Nucleus laboratories in La Jolla, followed by uh, full-body IV stem cell therapy in the afternoon. Todd is an expert in this area, and as you'll hear, he's a PhD in biomedical engineering from UC San Diego. He's got a bachelor's of science in mechanical engineering. I think he comes from both the, uh, the bioscience area intersecting with the bioengineering area intersecting with the entrepreneur area in this podcast. Todd talks a little bit with me about how he got to know Peter and Bob and Tony, why he left a position he was pretty happy at to uh, come to Fountain as its initial CEO. Uh, He talks a little bit about uh, some of his other uh, entrepreneurial endeavors, uh, some of which were successful and some of which were uh, not successful, and shares some of his scar tissue about that, and talks a little bit about his hopes and dreams for how Fountain can uh, change the landscape in the health span uh, industry or field. Our uh, podcast interview was recorded live 
in the uh, former offices of Craig Ventner at Human Longevity, Inc. Uh, in the middle of uh, July uh, 2019 in La Jolla. Uh, Todd was very generous with his time and with his candid comments. And I think it gives you a really great window into a startup, into an ecosystem that, uh, in my view, is exploding uh, in developing countries around the world. Here's Todd. Todd, thank you very, very much for being with me on Positive Enterprise Value here today. I really appreciate your time this morning here in La Jolla. Thanks for having me here. Um, you know, uh, you have a, uh, a background and a bio so that many people know you probably from that bio as uh, Todd McAllister uh, in bioscience, a PhD, uh, runs several labs. You've done many things academically and professionally. But here's a chance for you to say, if you were going to tell the story and use a couple of nouns for what you professionally do today, what would you say? I suppose none of my nouns would have a lot to do with science because today it's more management and, and building. It's an entrepreneurial effort and that's been uh, uh, my hallmark. Is So uh, I think I would have tended towards verbs, not noun. I would Good. have said build. Great. Uh, I think that's... Entrepreneur. Close, close, well, yeah, so that maybe that was my noun. Dad? Uh, father also. You saw my son <laughs> just a few minutes ago. Yeah. Great. So um, is that decision about being an entrepreneur and uh, not being in science, is that deliberate on your part, and is that what you thought you were going to do when you were a kid? Certainly not when I was a child. Uh, you know, I had the typical aspirations. I thought I was going to be a professional soccer player, then a professional ah. cyclist. I actually was a professional cyclist. I lived in France for three years and raced bikes professionally. Wow, no kidding. I didn't yeah, know that. So that was between uh, undergrad and grad school. I spent three years living in France. Um, uh, it wasn't really until grad school that that gene started expressing. And uh, I fell into a terrific project actually just down the road, uh, UC San Diego, just across the freeway here, yep. was where I did my PhD. And I got involved with um, uh, a terrific postdoc that was one of the few guys that I have met that I can say is truly a brilliant uh, individual, Nicholas LaRue, who came to UCSD with um, a remarkable technology of a tissue-engineered vascular graft. We started seeing the value of that uh, as grad students, and we also saw the glacial pace that things moved in an academic umbrella. And that was kind of the height of the dot-com boom and the way that uh, you know money was flowing into entrepreneurial ventures. Right. I went up to San Francisco as a kid. No pedigree, just a good idea. Uh, raised, I think, $2.4 million to start a company, and off we went, and Nico was the uh, kind of intellectual horsepower of that, and I was the, the clinical and corporate horsepower. Got it. Wow. So you, you uh, transitioned out of academic life pretty early. It, it, were your parents academics? Uh, my father was a professor at uh, Colorado State University for a while, but he was, uh, uh, when I said I haven't met very many brilliant people, that would be one of the others that I've met. He's oh, great. a PhD in uh, uh, electrical engineering and physics. Uh, and actually ran Bechtel Labs um, yeah. uh, advanced research for several years. Were you a good student uh, growing up? I was a pretty good student. Yeah. I didn't live uh, much adventure when I was a, 
uh, a student, I'll say that. I was voted most studious in high school. <laughs> that is not. Really, I don't see that in your personality today. Uh, you must have lost I, that in I've, France. I've, I've evolved a little bit since then. But yes, that was not an equation for popularity in high school, I can assure you. So so uh, did in, in, in high school and in undergraduate school, um, did you work? Did you have jobs? What were some of your first jobs? Uh, I did work. Uh, I worked in a bike shop. Uh, I got a job uh, repairing bikes, knew absolutely nothing about it, and walked in there and said, oh, yeah, of course I can do that, and uh, learned on the, on the job how to do that. And, and I think that's you know, an interesting indicator of personality, right, being able to come in and say, I can do this. I can adjust I that derailleur. Exactly. And I figured it out. I was a mechanical engineer, so I could figure that so out. So did you do that for a while? I did that all through my undergrad for oh. at least three years. Uh, oh, yeah. I did that. Yeah. And um, what about uh, in graduate school or right after graduate school? Uh, in graduate school, I worked, uh, again, for another San Diego company, uh, you know, five, ten hours a week, um, not only to get a little bit of extra cash coming in the door, but also to get some corporate experience and broaden that. I worked for a company called Medication Delivery Devices, which was an infusion pump. Ironic that now what wow, we're doing yeah. is using infusion pumps for our therapies. So Interesting. Come full circle, I suppose. So... Um, I don't think I know. How did you actually first hear about uh, the startup of Fountain Therapeutics and, and what was attractive to you about that? Peter Diamandis called me uh, more or less out of the blue. And I obviously had the background, I think, that matched many of the things that Fountain was trying to do. Um, and, and quite frankly, I get phone calls pretty frequently. Hey, you know, we see what your background is. We'd love to have you help start a stem cell therapy company. And um, this was appealing for a lot of reasons. First, and obviously the team that was behind it was something really special. But more importantly than that, I think it was the philosophy of making this a data-driven play. There are literally thousands of stem cell clinics, uh, both inside and outside the US. And uh, as we discussed earlier, I think the, uh, the interest in data for most of those ends as soon as they've swiped your credit card. Mm -hmm. There's no follow-up, there's no real interest in saying, let's, let's make this work this team, they're not really all that interested in, you know, swiping the credit card on day one. They're interested in making a therapy that works. And in order to do that, what do you need? You need to collect the data. You need to have the follow-up. And so I think it was that philosophical match uh, that we both saw this, quite frankly, as a big data play. So, so uh, I'm, uh, you know, many of the people who listen to Positive Enterprise Value are super successful business owners, and they're in a wide, wide variety of different kinds of organizations, for-profit and not-for-profit. But I bet you that many of them right now are scratching their heads and saying, what's he talking about stem cell therapy? Could you give us a little uh, framing on, on the uh, field, on the industry? Sure. Uh, obviously, that's a very difficult one to boil down to a 10-second answer. But um, we've all read in the USA Today and Time Magazine, whatever uh, uh, mainstream media, all of these wonderful things that stem cells can do, uh, from therapeutic applications to anti-aging, right? It's a broad spectrum. The reality is the vast majority of those, we've fallen well short uh, of the promise of stem cells. And more recently, we've seen a lot of negative press of patients that have been injured. Um, so the question is, which of these therapies are stem cells most well-suited for? Um, and what, what sort of protocol can we employ to maximize the likelihood of those working. We're trying to shift this entire field of stem cell therapy. So instead of walking in with advanced stages of Alzheimer's or 
bone on bone for an orthopedic case or post heart attack or post stroke where you've done catastrophic damage to billions and billions of cells. I think it's fairly unlikely that you give a single injection and repair that damage overnight. Uh, and that's you know, predominantly been the model of stem cell therapies for the last 20 years. We're trying to shift that to a preventative maintenance application and saying, let's restore the body's stem cell reservoir. Uh, and I'll back up a step. One of the things that most people probably don't realize is um, as we age, uh, both the function and the number of stem cells decreases precipitously. So at our age, uh, mid-50s, you maybe have 10, at most 15% of the functionality of your stem cell reservoir that a two, three, five-year-old kid would have. So not surprisingly, uh, when I fall off of my skateboard, uh, my repair mechanism is a little less uh, robust than the five-year-old that falls off his scooter. Right. So our entire philosophy is let's restore that uh, reservoir with injections throughout the year and try to, in a preventative maintenance model, delay or completely avoid the onset of some of these chronic diseases. Right. I think as you and I discussed uh, briefly yesterday, um, we both probably have a lot of friends who uh, think about and talk about uh, the longevity movement and the longevity field, if you will, where there are a lot of for-profit players today, a lot of startups. And um, I, I'm not being critical of those people, but as I mentioned to you, what interests me more than lifespan is health span. So one of the things that was interesting to me when I first heard Peter Diamandis and Bob Hariri, and then I saw the video with Tony Robbins talking about the concept that is now Fountain. I actually don't usually get moved this way, but I actually I stood up and, and pointed my finger and said, I want to do this. And I was really drawn to the, the, this for me was not a, a clinical model to fix something that was wrong, but rather to build on strength. And so for example, you talk about stem cells. My stem cells are 62 years old, and the thought that I could access stem cells that are young and that might help my body be able to regenerate whatever wear and tear I have, because I got a lot of miles, is super attractive to me. Could you talk more about that? So the, the entire philosophy, is, as we've just said, is to rebuild this reservoir to restore this regenerative capacity. And uh, I, I think if we look at this from the lens of uh, a recovery model. It's a very steep um, uh, curve uh, you know, to, to expect those cells to come in and repair massive, massive damage from advanced Alzheimer's or massive, massive damage post heart attack. But if we rewind the clock and say, okay, through these advanced diagnostics, we're here at Human Longevity Institute today, and, and they have those diagnostics to be able to look at and say, we think you're at risk for X. Um, to be able to come in now with an intervention and say, okay, we think that we can delay the onset of X, again, whether that's cartilage erosion or cardiovascular disease, uh, by bringing the stem cells back in to, to help with this day-to-day -day repair mechanism, right? So stem cells weren't designed to come in and restore your brain after 12 years of Alzheimer's um, uh, degradation, let's say. They were designed to come in and repair minor damage on a day-to-day -day basis. So if we're able to restore that reservoir and step by step by step on a daily basis, maybe not completely avoid the onset, but delay the onset of some of these chronic diseases, I think that's a very compelling play scientifically because I think that's a, a 
a little easier um, hypothesis to swallow than just we're going to snap our fingers and, and make those years or decades of damage go away overnight. Um, but also from a philosophical perspective, and I think you, you just expressed it, to look at that and say that seems to make sense, and if I can add five years of functional health span to my life, I'm walking more, my strength doesn't go away, uh, my, my cognitive abilities don't go away, um, I think that's a very compelling business model to be able to uh, offer that possibility to patients. And uh, Yeah, and I'm not a physician, I'm, I'm, but I've been married to one for 35 years. Uh, but as I think about the, in having been uh, a client of HLI's uh, health nucleus yesterday, as I think about the things that they're interested in investigating, you can help me out here, but I think they're sort of in order, cardiac, cancer, um, pulmonary, neurological, and I may be missing one, that are causes of, of death and that they're investigating. I know that they're right to do it the way they do it, which is to break them down that way and think about it. But I couldn't help from a, a layperson's point of view, a business owner, an entrepreneur's point of view, to think to myself, actually, what's cause and what's effect? Because some people address those diseases separately. I kind of think of them all as diseases that come upon you with aging, with mileage, right? No, no question, and at the end of the day, um Let's ask a simpler question. If any one of those are impacting your ability to live your life at the pace and at the level that you want, I'm not sure you really care if it was cancer or cardiac that, that you know, put right. you down. Right. Um, so can you, with a single strategy, delay the onset of any or all of those? Again, I think that's a reasonable expectation to say these are the building blocks and these are the units that whether it's mobility or cognition, um, these cells have the ability to repair damage, right? They're not saying, oh, well, that's uh, damage to this cell. I'm not able to repair that. I can only repair that cell. Um, in, in fact, one of the, the cornerstones of our approach is that we have a milieu of cells that we're injecting so that they have that broad ability, uh, and they're not distinguishing, gee, we can only uh, go after uh, cardiac and right. we can't go after uh, right. stroke or something like that. So um, let's see, would you have uh, joined Fountain four or five months ago? Uh, February, okay. February 15th. Yeah, and uh, you've been occupied with doing a startup, really. And uh, can you tell us, uh, give us a little view of sort of uh, what you're hoping for in terms of a destination? Um, yeah, that's, that's multifaceted, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, if, if we look at the long game, the destination is to create the data that shows that this works. Uh, again, at the end of the day, this field is dominated by anecdotal results. And while we enjoy talking about those and while we think it's important to look at those, ultimately our goal is to create a data set that definitively shows that this works. And it may not work in the grandiose way that we just said, right? It may not be working for neurodegenerative diseases and maybe only it works for cartilage uh, repair we'd like to be able to have a comprehensive data set where we can start to pick out not only for which diseases the treatment is, is appropriate for, but also which patients. Certain patients come in. I, I think, again, this field is ripe for over-promising and under-delivering. We'd like to be able to 
create a personalized platform where we can say, hey, Pete, this is the type of cell that we think you react best to, or this is the damage that we're trying to repair specifically in you, and so we're going to target that with this specific stem cell type. So in, in the long view, it's creating that data set, and of course, putting all the underpinnings in to make that happen is a lot more difficult uh, than, than just saying it. Um, but, but very clearly, that's the thrust of our effort right now is to put that data collection platform uh, into place and also to be able to show uh, meaningful feedback to the client. Um, we're selling vitamins, ultimately, not aspirin. Aspirin's easy to sell because your headache goes away immediately. You have immediate feedback and you say, gosh, next time I have a headache, I'm going to take aspirin. Vitamins are a very different situation where you can't necessarily tell that it's working. So again, interacting with that data collection platform to be able to show indicators to the client that says, hey, your, your blood biomarkers are moving in a positive direction. Hey, your mobility is moving in a positive direction. Hey, your strength is moving in a positive direction. To be able to give that feedback, I think it's critical not only to our business model from a commercial perspective, but you know, from a patient's perspective to be able to say, yes, this is working, I think that's uh, of great value. So yesterday I was uh, at uh, Health Nucleus here in La Jolla and then went, uh, I don't know, 30 miles away to do the fountain stem cell treatment. Uh, tell me about what you're thinking in the short term, if you can, about um, where uh, clients will be able to access these kinds of services. So we're focused right now on three locations. We have a location that's operational today in Mexico, as you know, um, and we're building two in parallel, one in the Bahamas and one in Grand Cayman. Uh, and there's really two reasons for those locations. One obviously is a more favorable regulatory environment where we're still, of course, giving um, uh, national regulatory approvals. We're not just you know, doing this in the, in the backyard. Um, so it's important that we have that regulatory oversight because of course we wanna be able to bring this data and the story back into the United States and critical that we have those regulatory approvals to do that. So um, uh, location is driven in part by the regulatory environment today. But secondly, um, this is a white glove experience uh, program right now. We understand that uh, until we're able to demonstrate the data and then bring our scale and our volume up uh, and then prices down, you know, today this is still a fairly expensive treatment and uh, we want to wrap that experience in, you know, a lovely location and a terrific experience for our clients. So that's why we're focused on uh, areas that can provide both the regulatory uh, uh, environment and uh, a wonderful place to go. Yeah, so Corrine and I had a really great experience yesterday, both at Health Nucleus, which is here in La Jolla, which was a super professional, world-class facility with, uh, you know, world-class people and just uh, uh, great um, capabilities. And then, um, I don't know, would you say half hour away uh, in the clinic in uh, Tijuana where uh, we saw actually equally great people, highly trained, great facility. Um, I have to admit, I was a teensy bit surprised that they were just over-the-top good. Uh, and really, in some ways, um, you know, La Jolla could go to school on, on some of the things that they were doing there. So um, talk to me about some of the challenges of, of integrating the health nucleus experience with the stem cell experience. 
yeah, so there's all sorts of uh, logistical challenges that you don't necessarily expect from the outset, right? You think, oh, I'm just going to merge these two terrific um, uh, diagnostic procedures with our therapeutic procedures. Because each of those are operating under regulatory umbrellas, there's all sorts of rules, regulations. So as you experienced, we have different blood tests that they have to do in La Jolla versus what we were doing at the clinic in Mexico. Uh, and we can't just snap our fingers and merge those as logical as it might seem. So, okay, we have to draw two tubes of blood. And, you know, there's a few little headaches like that. But we've spent the last three or four months trying to seamlessly integrate those. And I think your experience is representative of what we've achieved now, where you're picked up by a car at 7.30 in the morning, you come through the health nucleus, you're taken across the border, uh, you're back in your hotel by 6 o'clock at night having a terrific dinner in downtown San Diego. Yeah, It's a pretty efficient uh, white glove uh, service, and, and you had a smile on your face last night, so I, Absolutely. I think we yeah. achieved what we were, Without a doubt. Uh, what we were yeah. looking Surpassed for. Surpassed my expectations, yeah. I would say, and I'm a tough grader. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, <laughs> uh, that, that's exactly what we're, what we're looking to do. We want every client to walk away, again, not only having a great medical experience, but a great experience. Help me understand why is it important to do the uh, health nucleus diagnostic integrated with the fountain treatment? Yeah. That, that wasn't completely evident to well, me. It's a great question. So if you go back again to what's our overarching mission, which is collect this data to show that it works, absolutely critical that we have a strong baseline. And there is no stronger baseline than the work that health uh, nucleus does. So comprehensive intake screening from full body MRI to CT imaging. Um, and that gives us a baseline, right? It's very difficult to say that the therapies are improving things if you don't know where you started to begin with. So that's a critical step in our process. We'll also be integrating wearables so that we can see, you know, day by day by day what impact this is having. Um, and ultimately what we want to be able to show with that collective data set is that um, your rate of decline, and I'm not sure we can reverse aging, but certainly I think we can slow it. We want to be able to show the rate of decline of the patients that are in this program uh, is improved relative to those that, that are not. And that's a very, very powerful story if you can come back and say you're walking further, you're walking faster, you have a better grip strength. Um, on and on that uh, list goes less susceptible to joint replacement surgery, less susceptible to the onset of other chronic diseases. Um, that's something that we want to be able to show, and the, the baseline screening is a critical part of that. So as you look at the, the next uh, six months, I'm thinking six months, six months, uh, what are some things that are on your plate that you absolutely feel is essential to accomplish? Um, the 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 biggest certainly is opening the second and third clinics. We want to be able to have an East Coast presence and a West Coast presence. Oh, would that be in the next six months? Yes. Oh, great. Yes. Great. And so does that mean also you duplicate the health nucleus capabilities somewhere yes. else? Yes. So we already have a facility open in Naples, Florida uh, that can deliver the exact same uh, uh, service that you got downstairs here in La Jolla. Uh, there's health nucleus facilities opening in Athens, Georgia, in Beverly Hills. So, you know, those are sprouting up all over the country. What we would like to be able to do, of course, is not have the patient have to fly to San Diego, then fly to the Bahamas. We want to make this as seamless and easy as possible. Um, so if you're an East Coast client, you know, nice to be able to go to Naples, Florida. Uh, 
jump on a plane in an hour and a half, you're in the Bahamas, get the rest of the treatment, maybe stay a few days and off you go. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do that one next. Yeah. Well, it's not a, it's not a difficult sell. No. Uh, if you see what that space looks like, uh, also in the Grand Cayman, uh, I mean, unbelievable resort, unbelievable facility. And you'll get again, that same white glove service. You know, it was interesting to me as an observer, um, and again, you know I'm a lay person, but I'm a really good observer and listener. It was interesting to me to listen to the people in Tijuana who obviously were super expert in this, to be able to realize that uh, in, in that way, the U.S. market was actually behind. That, uh, you know, I'm not pointing any fingers here because I don't know enough about the FDA or anything else, that has, how it works, but it clearly was... Uh, surprising to them that where the U.S. is ahead in so many other ways that we would be behind in this way and that we would actually have to go outside of the country to accomplish this kind of treatment. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge political hot point to say what really is the mission of the FDA. Is it to protect people? Is it to give them options of treatments? Um, and they're in an unenviable position. Nobody looks at the FDA and says, wow, terrific. Uh, in the last 50 years, our life expectancy has gone from 63 years old to 79 years old. When you think about that, that's a pretty unbelievable accomplishment. We all say we want a longer day. The FDA has given that to us. They've managed the evolution of science in the last 40, 50 years uh, and effectively tacked on, you know, within your lifespan. The average life expectancy has increased, uh, I don't know the exact number, but probably 12 or 15 years. So you're giving a 30-hour day for every 24 hours. It's just tacked on at the end. That's a pretty remarkable achievement. Um, but then we all, you know, complain and moan when we have to travel outside the U.S. to get some of these more advanced treatments. So very obviously the FDA takes a risk-averse position. And if we look, you know, let's take the context of Alzheimer's or heart failure. These are patients where you know what the outcome is. I think it's a little bit difficult to justify this conservative stance that the FDA has taken. And if we look at the clinical trials that are done under FDA, uh, surveillance in those um, uh, indications overwhelmingly. It's 10 patients here, 20 patients there, 30 patients there. It's not how we do drug trials. It's not how we do device trials. The only way you get comprehensive data is to do 10,000 patients yeah. or 5,000 yeah. patients. And I think the single biggest failing uh, of our system has been an unintended consequence is that we drive patients outside the U.S. Uh, to an environment where they don't always collect that data. We've now treated literally millions of patients with stem cells. The vast majority of those have no follow-up data whatsoever. What, what a you know, horrible loss of a resource, right? Because right. these complicated therapies, we don't know the right dose. We don't know the right cell type. We don't know the right delivery mechanism. The only way you capture that information is with data. So the good thing I think is first of all the the FDA is taking a more aggressive stance towards adoption of um, uh, of stem cells, and secondly, we're seeing a shift in the way that we collect data. If we go back again to a, a cardiac example, which is I think the classic in our field, we've been treating patients with uh, heart attacks or heart failure with stem cells for more than 20 years now, um, and typically the endpoint that we're looking for clinically is a six-minute walk test, maybe ejection fraction. And these are tests that are done once every six months, once every 12 months. Again, if you look from a statistical relevance point of view, the likelihood 
of seeing an improvement and being able to hone your, your therapy into something that works based on what ends up being a few dozen endpoints. You know, I think that's destined for failure uh, before you get out of the gates. Yeah, compared to if you had an Aura ring, for example. Well, or an Apple Watch. Sure. Right? The amount yeah. of data that you can capture that's now meaningful data because part of the problem also is if you say, oh, Pete, this is terrific. Your ejection fraction has gone from 32 to 34. Okay, okay that's great. probably a good thing, but <laughs> uh, what's that mean, Doc? Um, uh, very different if I say your average steps before the therapy was 4,000 a day and today it's 8,000 or even 6,000 or even 5,000. Well, we know the, the needle is moving in the right direction. Right. And this is data that you're collecting 724. And you're right. How are you sleeping? Uh, what's your grip strength? There's all yeah. sorts of things that we can easily get uh, blood biomarkers. A lot easier to go get a lab core exam. A lot easier to wear your Apple Watch than to come into a clinic and have an ultrasound or have a six-minute walk test administered. So the the onset of wearable sensors, I think, will absolutely revolutionize the way people collect data and the way clinical trials are run, and, and I think we're at the forward edge of that. I uh, had some fun yesterday showing the people at the Fountain Clinic in Tijuana. My, um, they were doing an EKG with on me as, uh, as I was leaving, and I was showing them my uh, little uh, app on my iPhone from um, Cardio One. Uh, the Procardia app, which allowed me to do put my thumbs on this little device and get an EKG. Now, I'm sure it's not the EKG that they did, which they did their own EKG anyway. Maybe it's in some ways not as good as that. I don't know. But the benefit was I actually did it while the nurse was standing there watching me and then emailed it to her while she was right there. So, I mean, I've got to believe that there's things like that, which for me as an entrepreneur and listeners to this podcast as entrepreneurs, many of us are all about speed. And trying to deliver something that's faster and fast, you know, speed is really valuable today. And so I think about that and wonder what are some things we could do. Especially in the context of, uh, you know, cardiac problems, for example. When you're out in the golf course and you're having some palpitations, that's not a bad idea. You don't need to go into the hospital to get your 12-lead EKG. You can put your finger on the, you know, the phone or, or just wearing your Apple Watch and yeah. send that to your physician. And you can say, no, no, Pete, you're all right. Or... Yeah, you might want to roll on in here. So, uh, you know, uh, obviously a lot of indications. Cancer, I'm not sure we need to uh, uh, know it while you're out on the golf course between, uh, you know, the 10th hole and the 11th hole. But uh, there is no question that this is changing the way medicine is. is uh, well, well, in my case, uh, Todd, I'm told I give heart attacks. I don't get heart attacks. So, <laughs> if, so as I think about your role as the CEO of this startup, I have great empathy because the things we're just talking about, I mean, all CEOs of startups are chief cook and bottle washer, right? There's something that needs to get done, they do it. They pick up the person from the airport, they make the sale, they collect the receivable, they put together the headquarters, whatever it takes. But I also have empathy that you're doing that and you're doing it in multiple geographies and multiple countries with, I'm guessing, complexity of regulatory authorities, right? So how do you do that? Have you assembled a team yet? I am assembling a team. How's that uh, going? Um, we're pretty selective on who we choose, and, and, and I'll say there's a step before that, which is, um, you know, again, as you know, we've got three founding visionaries that are off the charts in terms of what their expectations are, but also what their forward-looking vision is. Um, very challenging sometimes to translate that vision into, okay, what's our working execution plan? So, Hell yes. So the reality is 
what I didn't want to do is assemble a team on day one before we really were out of the gates and had a clear north star and a clear direction that we were going. So we've spent three or four months really plotting, okay, what are the locations that we're going to be in? What are the cell types that we're going to do? What is the, what is the treatment really look like? Um, once we've got that um, uh, positioning in place, uh, you know, and those are simple nuts and bolts questions, right? And that's things that the Peter Diamandis of the world or the Tony Robbins, that's not their job to right. do that. That's my job. Right. Now that we've got some of that in place, yes, we're assembling the team. So finding the people that can oversee the manufacturing, finding the people that can oversee the, the regulatory activities, finding the people that can do operations, that's that's what we're doing right now. What kind of manager are you? Are you are you? Do you feel that you're you're a uh, demanding manager? Are you inspirational manager? Are you a person who I, cracks the whip? What what are you? Uh, I'm not a big uh, uh, cracker of the whip. Um, I would like to think that I'm both demanding and inspirational. And I I think uh, lead by example has always been my philosophy. If you're not the first one into the office and the last one out, I think it's a little difficult to ask your, your junior staff to uh, work the long hours and sweep the floors if they don't see you doing that. So um, historically, I've, I've been that guy that, you know, again, as you uh, outlined, all of those things that, you know, resonated a little bit. I uh, bet they I've, did. I've spent plenty of time putting together cubicles and uh, sweeping floors and doing all sorts of things like that. So, so my experience, Todd, is that as you get to a level, uh, in your case, you've had a, th- a number of successful professional chapters already. Uh, I'm guessing the listeners understand the risk that you took by leaving a professional career and s- deliberately turning and making a course change and now doing another startup. But my experience has been that when people get to this level, that uh, 90% of the challenges facing them are sort of psychological, right? And that um, for high-performing people, the thing to sustain all this is to make sure that you're really investing in things like self-care. Some people, just off the top of my head, some people work out, some people you know, are runners, some people do yoga, whatever. What do you do for self-care? Uh, uh, I, I don't want to contradict the message, but probably not enough. Uh, I certainly don't exercise enough. I certainly don't uh, uh, ride my bike enough as I used to do. Do you still uh, ride your bike? Uh, I mountain bike a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not as it's not as fun when you're at a certain level and then you come back in and you say, oh my God, I'm 53 years old and that hill just looks enormous. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, 20 years ago, you'd go up in the big chain ring at 25 miles an hour. So right. That takes a little of the wind out of the sails. Um, but I, I, I live vicariously now through my children. Uh, I spend a lot of time with uh, my three kids and, and chasing down their different endeavors, and, and I, I love that. That's, that's, I think, what I, outside of work, what really drives me and what my passion is. In work or outside of work, do you have any, what I'd call, kryptonite? Is there something that if you touch it, it uh, it's the ultimate weakness for you, either an activity or a person or... Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I would like to say that I have enough discipline to avoid that in the first place. So, you know, I, I don't have things that suck me in in a, in a negative spiral way. Uh, and I'm sure there's those things out there, but um, y- you asked before what sort of uh, you know, leader I am or what sort of nouns I would use. Discipline maybe is another one where uh, I think you can sit back and avoid some of those pitfalls just by thinking it through and spending a little bit of thoughtful time to 
uh, avoid that place in the first place. Oh, that's a good one for uh, someone who's a CEO of a startup too, right? Because resources, whether you whether they're our positive energy or time or cash or technology or people, resources are finite. Yep. So thinking about where you're very deliberately putting those resources, huge, critical. right? I think that's a critical skill set to have. So um, where does uh, a tour of duty like Fountain um, belong as you look at your sort of life arc? Do you have a life plan and a destination? And if so, how does this fit into it? Um, uh, yeah, um, and, uh, you know, some of these things are a little embarrassing to uh, uh, memorialize on a podcast, but I'll say I've always been driven to change the world, not to make incremental progress. I was never all that motivated to say, oh, I'm gonna design another stint, and this one's gonna have a little bit more crooked wire here, and uh, it will be 3% better than the next idea. Um, uh, what motivates me is something that's transformational, uh, and, and this is a unique opportunity because I truly believe we have the opportunity to revolutionize medicine. If we can shift medicine from the reactive care that's delivered today and show data that this preventative uh, platform is you know, both effective and cost effective, because that's a, I think in our field a lot of times we get zeroed in on does it work or not. Sadly, it has to work in a way that's cost effective. Um, but right now that's my that's my goal yeah i don't think that's embarrassing at all uh, i love your answer it's fabulous i i think that many people who are uh, entrepreneur owner managers and listen to this will resonate with the thought that we seem to be experiencing this shift from going from what i would call um, sick care hopefully towards health care and the sick care model I, i'm really not a critic of it we probably have a pretty good sick care model in this country. I'm not sure. It seems like we do. If you're sick, you know what to do. It's the healthcare part that yeah. is the shift that seems sort of somewhat painful for everyone in the system. Yeah, I, I might argue at the point that we're doing it well. Okay. Um, Tell me about if, that. Well, I mean, if we look, the, the economics are not sustainable. When we look at the tsunami of, of aging people that are coming into the system, uh, and if we look at the fraction of resources that are applied in the last six months of life, um, it's neither a service uh, to the patient, the patient's family, nor the payers. So uh, I look at that and say the model is broken. Um, you know, it, it needs to be shifted, and shifting it to a preventative platform is certainly one of the answers. Um, lots of people would have lots of different answers on how you can uh, move the needle in the right direction, but um, I'm not sure the current trajectory uh, is sustainable or uh, appropriate. So easy for us today when we're not sick to say, oh yeah, it seems to work okay. Uh, I think a lot of people would argue it's it's not working well. Fair enough. And I guess where I'm coming from is a little bit of a point of view of, um, I don't remember exactly, but I'm going to say my, my grandparents probably died in their 60s and 70s. And my parents uh, recently died both at age 92 and I think there's some argument to be made that uh, at 62 and fairly healthy, my life expectancy might put me into my 90s. And the reason why I bring this up is because I think for a lot of business owners, humans for that matter, we sort of think we have this quaint thing we do. We look at the past 
and we project it linearly in the future as if that's what's going to happen. And so if you think that and you are a business owner in your 50s or 60s, you might think, oh, I've got to think about transitioning my ownership or transitioning my leadership of my enterprise. But actually, you might have as much time in front of you, 30 years, as you had going back to when you were 30 years old. Yeah. yeah. And so that's, that's an interesting mind shift, isn't it? Well, if there's one thing I've learned from working uh, for Peter Diamandis, it's this exponential thinking. Right? Yes. And, and you're absolutely right. Uh, 65 is a retirement age today. That's, that looks a little ridiculous, right? Yeah, right, um, right. You know, financially might be a great idea if you can <laughs> do it. Uh, but in terms of productivity, could you still be doing uh, the same level of activity, the same level of cognitive ability that your grandfather was doing, um, you know, at you might be at that level when you're 85 that he was at when he was 55. So yeah. it's, it is not a linear uh, scale right now, for sure. So many uh, owner managers who listen to this episode, Todd, probably sounds to them like you're a guy who's had lots of successes. You went to school, you bicycled in France for three years, you got your PhD, you've been involved with a lot of interesting businesses. And this, it would seem to them that your life has been filled with success upon success upon success. Is that true, or have there been some life failures or some challenges that come to mind that have uh, helped form who you are today? Uh, my first business ultimately failed uh, with great clinical results. We had phase three approvals and terrific results in phase two, uh, and we ran out of funding. Uh, you know, that was 15 years of my life plus another four years of grad school, so didn't exactly end in the transformational uh, you know, storybook ending that I had expected. And okay. that was a, what did you, you take know, from that? Are there some, what are some life lessons from that? Well, it took me about two years to get through to the, uh, you know, getting over the, uh, the pain yeah. <laughs> and taking away a few life lessons. Yeah. Um, and, you know, certainly I, I don't think you can look at a failure like that and not take the blame and not uh, say, wow, I made some fundamental mistakes in that. Um, uh, and, and I did obviously make some mistakes, uh, but it took a long time before I could really look back objectively and say, here's where the mistakes were made, and here's how I would avoid that in the future. Um, and no matter what the, fa I mean, every one of us has had those failures, right? So right. I think the critical element is, can you at some point, doesn't have to be right away, but can you at some point look back objectively, not pointing fingers at the other guy, not pointing fingers at the you know, bad luck that you had and say, where were the mistakes? And how do I fix those gaps for the next time around? If you can do that, then I'd say at least you're walking away with uh, uh, an improved education and a, a better toolkit for the next time around. Yeah, as, as someone who's a student of positive psychology, I would say that, uh, you know, in some ways success doesn't change you because it uh, informs you to keep on doing what you're doing. It's only really failure that instructs you. If you're listening, and if you are also willing to change your behavior, you have to be willing to do that. But I, for sure, for me, coming out of some spectacular failures I can think of, it caused me to say, whoa, and change my behavior, which resulted in who I am today. Nobody gets overly introspective when the good times are rolling, right? <laughs> right, right. So um, we're coming to the close of our, of our thoughts. Um, Help me understand, um, you know, we there have a lot of people listening who have uh, very achievement oriented and they have lots of goals. And sometimes to achieve goals, you use habits. Are there some new habits that have changed your life or are there some good ones that have been most improved your life in the past few years? Uh, I'll certainly say a commitment to watching 
um, uh, what my levels of exercise, what my levels of activity are. Because you know, we, we've spent the last hour talking about stem cells, and it's very tempting to say, wow, just a quick injection of cells is gonna change everything. It may improve everything, but it's only part of the story, right? If I'm eating seven pieces of bacon uh, for breakfast every day and three Cokes for lunch, uh, and I don't sleep because I'm on a red-eye flight, um, I'm not sure that the stem cell injections are going to uh, fix all of the problems that that destructive behavior is, uh, is exacerbating anyway. So um, certainly in my own life, because I've lived that way. I've lived that lifestyle. I, you know, I eat three meals a day on my lap because I'm zipping back from the airport trying to make the swim meet for my daughter and then turn around and take my kid to the go-kart track. Right. Um, that's not a particularly uh, appropriate lifestyle. Um, so slowing down a little bit to say, all right, I have to take care of myself. I have to look at my Apple Watch. I have to, you know, I'll get up at 11 o'clock before I go to bed when that third ring says a 10 minute walk will close yeah. your ring. Right. Uh, so I've started paying attention to those things. Uh, and I think that's something that we should all be taking a, a few moments to say, you know, what are the wellness activities that we should be doing? And that's actually a part of the service that we'll be offering also. So I've maybe transitioned that to a shameless plug for Fountain, but it's not just a stem cell uh, entity, it's a wellness entity. So what are the other activities? What are the nutraceuticals? What are the uh, diet changes? What are the activity changes that you can make? It's a it's a package. The stem cells are a part of that, and I think it enables some of the things that we can't otherwise address. Um, uh, but I think it's critical to have that entire package uh, at your fingertips. You know, I, uh, I, I read a book recently that I bet a lot of the listeners to Positive Enterprise Value have either read or heard about called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, who uh, would be, I think, acknowledged as possibly the world's ex foremost expert on sleep today. And coming away from that book and also hearing him on several podcasts, including Peter Atia um, and others, uh, I too think about um, working out and I think about nutrition and I think about uh, stress. But Matthew Walker sort of uh, gave me a little reset on that and basically said, yeah, those are really important things to think about. And the foundational thing underneath all of those is the quality of your sleep and the length of your sleep. Because if you think about it, you and I have spent some time on red eyes. And if you only get two hours or three hours of sleep, his point is you can never make that up. Yeah. And to think that you're going to sleep late on Saturday morning and make that up, just, just forget it. Yeah. Well, what's utterly remarkable about this is that we've all experienced that, right? How, right. how many of us after a three hour night of sleep come up at 6 a.m. the next morning and can truly say, oh, I'm, at, I'm, I'm, I'm at my optimum right now? We all know that's not true. Um, but yet, how many of us follow that uh, uh, advice? And, and again, the same goes for diet, the same goes for exercise. So one of the things that we'll roll into our program is to try to make not only an awareness of these things, but again, to have feedback. So uh, we didn't talk about this uh, through the rest of the interview, but central to our um, product offering will be an app that gives you immediate feedback of what your, um, we'll just say aging rate is looking like and having all of these different um, uh, elements that add into that. And so let's face it, it's very easy in our current day-to-day uh, -day lives you know, to, to ignore the fact that you didn't eat lunch or to ignore the fact that you had four hours of sleep. If my iWatch 
is looking at me and I'm redlining my aging speedometer, I think that's very real feedback. And you can take a step back and say, okay, and now if I can push recommendations that says, hey, my oral ring said that I only slept four hours and it was not a restful sleep uh, and I had seven pieces of bacon, well, okay, now there's some actionable things that I can take. So you know, we I, want to provide that path. You know, I agree. And I, I think that the concept of collecting the data and having that uh, population of data obviously is essential. And I know you don't need another thing to do, but it, it strikes me as a, uh, someone who's intellectually interested in this area and knowing that many, many other entrepreneurs are interested in this, that you are just a half a step away from forming a community. That where, you know, you can have people who go through the health nucleus and fountain and use a tracking device and are getting, um, some of you're getting their data aggregated and they're getting their data personalized. But there's also possibly a large amount of learning that's possible if this community were able to come together and share some of these thoughts. And Fountain is in a great position to be the, per, the, the, the one who pulls that together. Yeah, I'd like to think we're not a half a step away from that. I'd like to think that we're doing that uh, today. So that what you just described is exactly uh, what we'll have. So, um, you know, we said at the outset we want to collect this data and we want to be able to show that the platform works, right? When we look at it from that lens, we're really saying we want to provide that data to the insurance companies or to, um, you know, clients that would purchase the service. Well before that, we want to be able to communicate that data to the person themselves and say, hey, you're doing well or you're not doing well and here are the recommendations that we have. The third element to that, of course, is being able to make that available to a community and share what works well for me, what works well for another guy, or to compete, right? I'm a very competitive guy. If, if you drop the gauntlet down and say, hey, I'm going to bring my you know, aging speedometer down lower than yours, uh, sure. game on. Sure. Uh, does that encourage client and patient compliance? Of course it does. Now, not everybody wants to do that, right? I don't think my wife wants to compete with me or compete with you but she would like that information, she would like that community, and she'd like that support from that community. So what we want to build into this is different levels of community-based interaction, whether it's competitive or collaborative, uh, to have that at your fingertips. Great. So, um, as I said, we're just in a concluding couple of questions here. What advice would you give to some uh, making it up smart, driven college student who wants to become uh, involved in this field? Uh, <laughs> uh, that's a loaded question. I, I love to give advice to the up-and-coming young people, and I, I always sound like a grumpy old man when I do it. Um, uh, you know, the, the biggest problem that I see with some of the young and up-and-comers is they want it. It's a little bit of an instant gratification uh, attitude. That never goes over very well uh, you know, with a guy like myself that's you know, grounded out over a 20 or 30 year period. So having the patience and ultimately the persistence uh, to, to get to that end goal. Um, a lot of people, you know, I think we live very much in an instant gratification world. Uh, and I think we're developing a bunch of instant gratification young people. Um, teaching persistence uh, is to me the greatest skill set you can can ever have in, in this type of business. Yeah, one of our uh, other uh, Positive Enterprise Value podcast guests, Angela Duckworth, uh, you know, of course, is the researcher who sort of, in, I'll call it invented, or brought, uh, brought to light the concept of grit as being that concept which is most correlated with 
long-term success, a grid she defines as passion and persistence for yeah. long-term goals. Yeah. I listened to that podcast and it resonated very strongly. So um, this is the last question. What, what's the one misconception, Todd, that you feel like um, maybe some people have, even some people who know you well, might have about you? I think I'm a pretty transparent guy, so I'm not sure there's a, a whole lot of mystery there. Um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say something, and maybe it's, I don't mean this to sound self-deprecating, but you know, you, you mentioned many times about successes or intelligent. Um, I don't really look at myself as particularly smart or particularly uh, uh, successful. I look at myself as hardworking and persistent, and I'm the guy that will hang on to the bone longer than anybody else uh, to get it done. Um, so I think some people would look and say, oh, there's some you know, success underlying that. And I say, no, it's not so much the success. It's the, uh, the work ethic and the just don't, don't quit. Well, I love it. And as your friend and as also as a stockholder of Fountain, I, I wish you uh, super success with that concept. And um, where can uh, listeners find you and find Fountain if they want to learn more? Uh, you can go to www.fountaintherapeutics.com. Uh, we're actually perhaps changing that name uh, over the next few weeks, but uh, there will at least be a pointer there to our, our new website. Right. Um, and, and I'm sure we'll have a link uh, to that in the, in the podcast. We will. So, um, Todd, I want to thank you so much for being with me today. It's been fun to talk with you. Yeah, Pete, thanks so much. Appreciate the opportunity.